Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, and today we're going to be talking about UFC 280, Charles Dubronx Oliveira versus Islam Mahachev for the vacant UFC lightweight belt, and it's going down this Saturday afternoon live in Abu Dhabi at the Etihad Arena. And I said afternoon, just so you all know, 10 a.m. Eastern, first fight. You got the main card at 2 p.m. And I also said vacant belt. Pretty crazy, right? Because Charles Dubronx Oliveira, according to us right now, before the fact, he is the undisputed UFC lightweight champion. But the stuff that went down that last fight, I believe, in Arizona against Justin Gaethje, some say that they should have just given him that half-pound allowance. Some say he didn't really miss weight. And uh, who knows what the deal is, but all that we know is that Hey, at least he's got a chance to become a two-time world champion here if he's able to defeat the very tough, the very, I mean, I'd say the guy that's paid his dues in Islam Mahachev, just the the protege of Habib Nurmagomedov. I mean, this guy, Islam Mahachev, has been an absolute wrecking ball. So I'm just so excited to, to get down to business, to break down this main event, the entire card. This should be one of the best fight cards of 2022. So let's get down to business, y'all. So do me a favor, smash the like button, hit the subscribe button if you're not already subscribed, and let's do this thing. Because in the main event for the undisputed UFC lightweight belt, we got the former champ, quote-unquote, Charles Dubronx Oliveira, the number one contender. He's 33-8, and eight, representing Brazil, taking on Islam Makhachev, the number two contender, who's 22 and and one representing Russia. And currently, according to DraftKings Sportsbook, they got it minus 180. Islam Mahachev, the comeback on Charles Dubronx Oliveira, is plus 155. So where do we begin, man? I mean, this this is just one of the best lightweight title fights we've ever had in the history of the sport. It almost feels like you guys remember how badly a few years back we wanted to see Habib Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson. It feels like this is the modern day version of Habib versus Ferguson, and we're actually going to get it. And I know right now it's Monday, so I don't want to jinx anything. But as of right now, it looks like it's going to happen. And man, I could not be more excited. And I don't think I've been more pumped for a lightweight title fight in years. And I mean, I say that. Granted, how could you have not been pumped for Charles versus Justin, Charles versus Dustin, Charles versus Chandler? All amazing fights. I feel like the lightweight belt, I mean, just the lightweight division in general, I personally still think it's the best division in the entire sport. I know a lot of people got love for Bantamweight, and rightfully so. Bantamweight is one of the, one of the emerging divisions. We're, we're going to talk about Sterling versus Dillashaw. We're going to talk about Piotr Yan versus Sean O'Malley. I got some love for Featherweight. I got love for Welterweight. But man, uh, I still think 155 is the best. And I can go on a tangent about why I feel that way. I mean, you look at some of the guys that are ranked like towards the end of the top 15. I mean, the Rafael Fazeevs, the Demiris Magulovs, the Armin Sarukians, the Gamrots, this and that. But we, we can talk about that another time. Let's break down this main event between Charles and Islam. So just an amazing fight. I mean, you got the guy in Charles Oliveira who has the most submission wins in UFC history, probably going to end up having the most finishes in UFC history. He probably has the, the most finishes in lightweight history as it is. There's, there's just a lot of talking points because it seems like the guys definitely turned a corner 
in his career. And I'd love to pinpoint exactly what I think the turner he corned, uh, uh, excuse me, the corner he turned is uh, specifically because there used to be a thing about Charles Oliveira. What happens if he's presented with adversity in a fight, right? Like, can he overcome adversity? What's been different in this win streak compared to in the past when guys were able to get to him? I think I have some of those answers. We're going to find out Saturday night if I'm right or wrong about that. But I have potential theories about why certain things have been going, how they've been going. So I'm excited to dive into that. And then also with Islam Makachev, the win streak he's on. And guys, don't even try me on no bullshit like, oh, he beat Bobby Green and Dan Hooker, and now he's getting a title shot. Yeah, let's like completely ignore that this dude, 30-27 Armin Sarukian, which one doesn't simply do. Let's just completely ignore how dominant he's been on this win streak. Like, let's not, let's don't even try me on that bullshit. This guy 100% deserves this title shot against Charles Oliveira. But let's start with Charles. So, what's been different in this win streak for Charles Oliveira compared to the past Charles Oliveira? I think that's a pretty good place to start. So, Charles Oliveira's always had the amazing submission ability. I mean, he's been a black belt in jiu jitsu this whole time. So, that hasn't changed. I mean, like, even prior to this win streak, we saw this guy getting triangle chokes, Peruvian neckties, calf slicers, the whole bit, uh, Darce chokes, guillotines, everything, rear naked chokes. I mean, arm bars. I mean, I can go on forever. So, like, it's not like his jujitsu suddenly gotten better on this win streak. What I think has gotten better, there have been some mental changes. His confidence is just absolutely through the roof now his confidence is on another level i mean you can see the kind of swagger just you feel this guy's aura and his presence when he walks in the room and if you're not in the room with him you see it on the internet and in all the videos i mean the guy is just uh when he walks in everybody notices that this guy walked in he's, he's got that thing about him he's i mean the guy's fucking walking around with a lion on a leash you know to to, to put it lightly so the confidence is obviously through the roof, but the submission ability has always been there. What I think has changed is the approach with the striking. He's always had tool striking. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the guy's always been a, a shoot-to-box striker. He's always had the big kicks, the knees, the elbows, this and that. But he fights at a different pace now. If y'all saw that fight a couple of weeks back between Daniel Santos and uh, John Castaneda, shout out to Daniel Santos for that plus 175, but... I'm not saying that to to um, to impress you, but to impress upon you that that style is exactly what Charles Dubronx has been implementing. He goes right after you, kill or be killed. And I mean, his pace is just relentless. He gets in these guys' faces and just pressures them to a point where they're like overwhelmed. They don't get a second to breathe. And we're talking about high-level strikers. We're talking about guys with some of the most knockouts and knockdowns in the history of the lightweight division like Dustin Poirier. When you're getting in a guy like Dustin Poirier's face and you're making him be like, holy shit, like give me a breather, that has to speak volumes, not just to the improved technique of Charles Oliveira, but again, back to the confidence that we've been talking about. I mean, this guy's confidence is truly unshakable. And I know that we're going to talk about, you know, why hasn't, you know, has he overcome adversity, this, this and that, because there have been some knockdowns that he's overcome. 
But I'm going to get to that in a sec. First, I just want to point out to in that Dustin Poirier fight, because, yeah, a lot of people just remember the submission. But what they don't talk about is how he was systematically breaking down Poirier with those knees, those tie clinch knees to the body, sucking the wind out of him was absolutely beautiful to see. And I'm a huge Poirier fan, but just saying um, as, as a lover of martial arts. Uh, I mean, how could you not respect the technique that was displayed there against Justin Gaethje? Justin Gaethje is known for being the guy that wants to drag you to hell and and wants to be like, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to take you with me. And Charles Dubrox, he was like, oh, oh yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll meet you right there. You know, I'll meet you in the depths of hell. And Justin Gaethje, I've never seen him wilt in a fight. I've seen Justin Gaethje get caught before, but I've never seen Justin Gaethje break. And Charles Oliveira broke Justin Gaethje. That was truly something serious. In the Tony Ferguson fight, look, I know Tony Ferguson is at this point a washed-up fighter, but, I mean, at that point, who had ever dominated Tony Ferguson like that? I know he ate some big shots against uh, Justin Gaethje, but to pick Tony Ferguson up with that body lock takedown, drag him, you know, pick, uh, walk him across the octagon, Matt Hughes style, slam him down, I'm surprised he didn't tap to that arm bar. I mean, it was just a dismantling against uh, Michael Chandler, who you know that first round is Michael Chandler's best round in any of his fights. Michael Chandler's hell on wheels in that first round. Michael Chandler's made a long career of knocking people out in that first round. Michael Chandler landed his best shots on Dubronx, and guess what? When it was Dubronx's turn to land his shots, Michael Chandler couldn't get back up. So... This version of Dubronx is, I'd say, the finished product. This is the best possible version. This is him in his prime. I don't think we're going to see him get any better. But with me saying that, I don't want people to take that as, oh, that just automatically means he's going to lose now. No, what I mean is this is this is the finished product. This is the, the 10 stars out of 10. This is, you know, because when he first came into the UFC, we saw that fight with Darren Elkins. We saw that fight with Efrain Escudero. We always knew he had potential. We always knew he had talent. Like, even in some of his losses, like the, the Paul Felder one, it's not like he just got ran over. I mean, he ran Paul Felder through the series. We still got to see the, the insane talent of Charles Oliveira before certain things happened, which I'm going to get to the adversity talk here in a second. But I just want to point to the fact that Charles Oliveira has always been a supremely talented fighter. It's just now the mental has truly caught up with the physical. But now let's talk about the adversity talk because I 100% agree that he's turned a corner mentally and I think his confidence is absolutely through the roof. But I do have to say a couple things. So why did the Felder fight go down the way it did? And how is the Felder fight different from the fights that have happened on his current win streak? So someone said you're implying Charles is on PEDs. No, actually, that thought didn't even cross my mind. Um, but <laughs> that's pretty funny, though. He's passed his drug test. So as far as I'm concerned, this guy is just the best version of himself. But what, I'm, what I want to say here about this Paul Felder fight, so why is that different than a lot of these other fights he's had on this current win streak? And how is the adversity in that fight how does that differentiate from him getting knocked down by, by David Tamor and coming back to win the fight, getting knocked down by Dustin, getting knocked down by Justin, getting hurt by Michael Chandler, coming back to win all those fights? Here's why I think the, the scenarios are different. When he fought Felder, 
he literally ran Felder through the series. I'm talking the guillotine to the Dars to the Anaconda, take his back, attempt a rear naked choke, like literally drag him through everything to a point where it's like, man, like, what do I got to do to get this guy out of there? And going for all those submission attempts is going to tire you out. And by that point, it was like, fuck, you know, and that kind of mentally broke him. And from there, Felder was able to get off on some big ground and pound. I think one of the fundamental differences here is the kind of adversity he's been going through in this current win streak, getting dropped by Tamor. What what do Tamor, Dustin, Justin uh, all have in common? They all dropped Charles Oliveira. But what's the fundamental difference here between them and what someone like Islam might do if he gets in you know similar spots? I think the fundamental difference is this. Dustin Poirier, David Tamor, and Justin Gaethje all dropped Charles Oliveira, but they all respect his guard so much that they backed away. They gave him ample time to recover. And from there, uh, Charles is right back in the fight. Whereas I think the difference here is, and, and I'm not saying that Islam's going to get a knockdown, but let's say Islam does get a knockdown. The reason I'm saying that is, Charles has been dropped his last few fights. It's been it's been a consistent theme. But the other consistent theme is these guys respect his gu- his guard and just his jujitsu so damn much they don't want to engage with him, and rightfully so. Why would you want to engage on the mat with Charles Dubronx Oliveira, the man with the most submissions in UFC history? I think that Islam has the grappling pedigree to where if he gets Charles hurt, I don't think that he's going to be intimidated to go into the guard of Charles Oliveira now. That could very well be his undoing. I mean, if Charles Oliveira triangles someone or arm bars them, guillotine, whatever the case may be, like it's not going to surprise anyone. I just think the difference is that Islam's not the kind of guy that's going to let you off the hook. And in oftentimes, Dustin Poirier is not the kind of guy that's going to let you off the hook. But we're talking when a fight's standing. But when a fight's on the mat with Oliveira and you drop him, I mean, these guys are like, hey, hey, get back up, man. I don't want no part of that. I don't want no part of that Charles Oliveira guard. And I just don't think that Islam is the kind of guy that's going to be like, I don't want no part of that guard. I think if Islam has you hurt, he's going to be like, oh, I'm going to come into this guy's guard. I'm going to neutralize him. And from there, I'm going to hurt him. And we've seen when Oliveira is hurt. I mean, Felder, when he when he smelled the blood, he went for it. Like, I don't think that Oliveira is just a brand new man. Do I think his confidence is through the roof? 100%. Do I think that technique, it's the best it's ever been throughout his career? Yes, this is the best version of him. I just think that, again, when people talk about him overcoming adversity in these uh, in these few fights, you have to put context into it. You have to mention the fact that when David Tamor dropped him, David Tamor didn't want to follow this guy to the ground. David Tamor wanted him back up. Dustin Poirier wanted him back up. Justin Gaethje wanted him back up. These guys want no part of the ground with Charles Oliveira, and rightfully so. Islam is going to want to be on the mat with Charles Oliveira, and that's what makes it interesting, right? It Can, can do Bronx be the first man to submit him? Possibly. But from what I've seen from Islam is, I mean, that... Dagestani wrestling and it's not just wrestling it's grappling because I mean this guy's out here submitting black belts too I think that he might have the skills to neutralize a guy like Charles Oliveira weather these storms go through the submission attempt series and come out on top and you know I know a lot of people will reference this sequence in the Tiago Moises fight where Islam Makachev you know later on in the fight he got taken down one time and 
Moises almost had his back and then Moises gave a position and you know that's like the one thing you can class you can clasp onto right to, to make some kind of argument well if Dubrox was in that position he would have got his hooks in maybe maybe not I mean he got his hooks in against Michael Chandler and Michael Chandler also a credentialed wrestler was able to uh to reverse position and get on top now someone asked a very good question you think he do you think he fakes being dropped to bait them that's a fantastic question because fabricio vicavalo or doom used to do a similar thing and i think at times charles Oliveira is so confident and he's so smart at this point that you know he will take all the time he needs to recover but i mean Dustin Poirier and, and Justin Gaethje definitely dropped him. Those were 100% knockdowns, and the Tamar fight was definitely a knockdown too. I think the the Michael Chandler hurting him was maybe a little bit overblown, but I think the other examples I mentioned, they, they 100% dropped him. So we saw when he took Chandler's back. Chandler was able to survive that, get on top, but we also know that Chandler is one of these guys that just balls to the wall in that first round isn't exactly known for getting better as fights progress. I've never seen conditioning to be an issue with Islam Makachev. The one fight that Islam Makachev lost against Adriano Martins, I mean, firstly, if you look at Islam's body in that fight compared to it now, I mean, he looked like a skinny little kid, whereas now he looks like a grown-ass man. He just made an immature mistake, rushed this guy recklessly. And at the time, Adriano Martins had a nasty counter right hook. I mean, Adriano Martins was in some high-profile uh, fights at the time. I mean, he got that big fight with Cowboy Cerrone. I know now Cowboy's retired, but at the time, Cowboy Cerrone was one of the stars of the division. Um and I mean, listen, no one's exempt to that first L as far as I'm concerned. And happy birthday to Charles Dubronx Oliveira. Today's his birthday. So Libra gang. My birthday was last week. So, you know, I got love for my Libras. But as far as the betting odds are concerned, so I actually bet Islam Makachev in the spot and I bet him at minus 162. Now, I know it's scary fading or betting against having money against this version of Charles Oliveira. And I'm not going to lie. It is very scary. But this is literally the first time minus uh, actually it's the first time in a long time. It's the first time since 2016 that we've gotten a minus one something on on Islam Makacha. The only other times were against Adriano Martins. That was a pick him with a slight lean on, on Makachev and the Chris Wade fight. Uh, it was the same thing, a pick him with a slight lean on Makachev and Makachev absolutely dominated Chris Wade. Uh, but aside from that, you're having to pay up minus 300, minus 400, minus five. I mean, like, just to give you an example, because Islam Makachev had a couple fights that fell through. Like, he was scheduled to fight Benil Dariush, who's, you know, a top five guy. Islam was like minus 375 against Benil Dariush. Islam had a fight scheduled or a potential fight with Justin Gaethje. He was minus 600. He's minus 400 against Alex Volkanovsky. So just, Speaking in terms of the market, I think we actually are getting a discount uh, on Islam Makachev at these odds. Now, of course, you cannot count out Oliveira. That's why I'm not going crazy. You know, I'm not saying this is a max bet. I'm not, and I'm not disrespecting Charles Oliveira. I think I spent like 15 minutes only talking about Charles Oliveira. That's the kind of regard I hold him in. But just talking numbers, I think that this is the first time in what 10 fights that we've gotten a minus one something on. Uh, on Islam Makachev, not to mention, I bet at minus 162. Now it's minus 180. I've already beat the uh, line. Well, so far it's Monday. We'll see where it closes. I believe I will be beating the closing line. So basically, this is what I kind of think. 
One thing I like about Islam stand-up is this. Everyone's so concerned about his wrestling that they kind of keep their hands down because they want to be ready to get those underhooks to sprawl to stuff. That Islam comes out here, he throws a lot of high kicks, and that catches people off guard. I love it when good wrestlers come out with high kicks. And, I mean, look, his volume might not be anywhere near Charles Oliveira's. That's for sure. Charles Oliveira comes out there like a berserker. But I feel like Islam Makachev makes his makes – his, uh, makes his shots count and also when you have how many fights has Islam Makachev had in the UFC let me count real quick he's had one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve we have a 12 fight sample size and this guy gets uh absorbs literally less than one strike per minute that's pretty fucking impressive that's that just that speaks volumes that's an insane number right there so how they match up I mean I don't think that Charles is going to be hard to find. I don't think that Charles is going to be scared of Islam. I don't think that Charles is going to be avoiding Islam. I think Charles is going to go right after Islam. You know, flying kicks, flying knees, straight punches, set up those hooks, and try to get him out of there. And as a result of doing that, I think he's going to leave himself open to being taken down. Now from there, it gets interesting. Will the guillotines be in play? Off his back, the triangles, the arm bars. Possibly. I mean, you can't sleep on Dubronx, but I think that, you know, I've seen guys like Michael Chandler get out of the back escapes, uh, get out of the back takes. I've seen Kevin Lee, you know, Kevin Lee has been submitted a bunch of times, but early on, you know, Kevin Lee, not known for the best gas tank, but Kevin Lee was able to reverse position a couple of times. I think a guy like Makachev, who has proven that he can go the full distance, I think that he'll be fine. And as long as he's not, you know, as long as he's not getting finished here, man, I think that he's going to be able to at some point in this fight, there's going to be a turning point where he's able to neutralize Charles Oliveira and start to impose his will. And at that point, I, I think that that's where things change. And I think that that's where the big question comes in on. Has Charles truly turned the corner in terms of this overcoming adversity talk? Because back to what I said with those knockdowns from Tamor, uh, uh, Dustin and Justin, they all gave him a chance to recover. They all, you know, he they dropped him. Charles was on his back chilling, taking his time to recover. They wanted no part in any kind of follow up. Islam's not that kind of guy. If Islam senses you're tired, he's going to turn up. And that's what I think. That's what I think makes this fight so intriguing. So I cannot wait. I, I bet on Islam to win two units at minus 162. Listen, if it's just simply Dubronx's time, then, I, you know, you guys know I ain't one of these guys who fucking writes paragraphs when I lose a bet and starts blaming it on the judges, blaming it on, oh, variance and this and that, which I know variance is a real thing, of course, but you just take your L like a man and, and give props to the other guy. You know, it, it is what it is. So if this is Charles' time, then I fully accept it. And win or lose, I'm a huge fan of Charles, but this ain't about being a fan of someone. I just really like the number I got on Islam Makachev. When's the last time you got a minus one something on Islam Makachev? And not to mention, I think he's got the grappling goods to come out here, survive these submission attempts, neutralize him. I think the takedowns will be there too. Charles has been taken down a multitude of times. He doesn't care about being taken down because he's so goddamn confident in his unbelievable Brazilian jiu-jitsu and rightfully so. It's just that now, I mean, who in his current run is a relentless Dagestani wrestler? None of these guys, man. And none of these guys had the confidence or the balls to go into Charles' guard. This guy does. And that's where things are going to get interesting. There will be some sweats along the way for sure. 
But I think the longer the fight goes, the more it favors Islam. And I, and I think he's going to come out here the new UFC lightweight champion. So I'm taking uh, Islam Makachev to get the win in Abu Dhabi. But let me tell you something. If Charles Oliveira goes out there, becomes a two-time lightweight champion, and beats Islam Makachev in Abu Dhabi, holy shit. Then we can start talking about you know, putting him in there with the BJ Pans and, and and the Habibs in terms of all-time greatness because that would truly be like, wow, like, oh, my God. But again, for people, you know, posting clips of, oh, Tiago Moises took him down for a second and then gave a position, for that one clip you can show me, I can show you six clips of Charles getting submitted. So to me, it's like, what, Islam got taken down one time in an MMA fight and then still ended up on top two seconds later? Like, guys, I don't think that's sufficient evidence to just say that Charles is just going to come out here and submit him. Maybe he does anyways, right? You never know. I mean, he is just that good. Uh, but I, I think that Islam is the guy. So let's see. Let's see. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. But I'm putting my money where my mouth is. So let's see what, that, let's see what happens here. Much respect to both guys. Huge fan. My money's on Islam in this one. Now... I think I covered everything for that for that main event, but if I if I remember something, I'll come back to it. But co-main event of the evening for the undisputed bantamweight belt, we got the champion Aljamain Sterling. He's twenty-one and three, taking on T.J. Dillashaw, the former two-time bantamweight champion, who's seventeen and four, both representing the United States of America. And currently, in DraftKings Sportsbook, they got it. Aljamain Sterling, minus 175. The comeback on TJ Dillashaw's plus 150. Very, very interesting fight. And I know that a lot of people are expecting me to come out here and shit on Aljamain Sterling and this and that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it it's, you know, I like having fun on Twitter, talking a little bit of shit. But make no mistake about it. I, I do respect Sterling. I mean, as a jujitsu guy myself, you know, I'm just a, a purple belt. I mean, I think he's a black belt. How can you not respect some of the techniques this guy does? If you can backpack Peter Yan for two straight rounds, not, not, not even just that. Like, look at that fight with Cody Stamen, just the dominance. And Cody Stamen is like a, a college wrestler. The dominance that Sterling shows on the mat, sometimes it's like something special. I, I think he truly is that good. My issues with Sterling have kind of been... Obviously, I didn't like how he won the belt, but my issues with him came way long before that. You know, back when he fought Brian Caraway, one of my favorite underdog hits was I bet Brian Caraway at plus 350. And the way that fight went down was the first round, Aljamain Sterling backpacked him. But then after that, he kind of fatigued and he broke in the second and third rounds. And not that that's been a consistent theme throughout his career, because look where he's gotten. He's holding a fucking belt, right? And he's beating guys like Piotr Yen. I mean, that speaks for itself that he's, you know, He's come a long way, baby. But I think that certain things that we saw in the past can still come out in these fights, even in these last two Piotr fights. Like, you look at that that first Piotr fight, and I mean, I thought that Aljamain was getting tossed. But let's let's talk about the second one, the one that that he that he won on the judges' scorecards. Now, I don't want to sit here and sound bitter because I did score it for Piotr. I had first round Piotr, I had second and third clearly Aljamain, and I had fourth and fifth uh, Piotr. That means that 48-47 uh, Piotr Yen. But regardless of who I scored it for, who I scored it for doesn't matter. It's who the judges scored it for. And if you want to talk about value at the betting odds, 
I mean, those that bet Algerman, hey, if it's a split decision, you got like a plus 350 dog, y'all did your job. So congratulations to you guys. I can admit that that was a bad bet, not only a bad bet on Piotr at, at those odds, but that the fight was way closer than I than I expected it to be. Like regardless of who I scored it for, that fight played out way closer, way closer. I, I thought it was going to just be a domination. I thought he was just going to, you know, put the icing on the cake, add insult to injury and run this guy over. And that's not what happened at all. Aljamain Sterling, man, the thing about it is like, I've never thought that Aljamain Sterling was like the toughest guy. I've always felt like as, you know, the fights get deeper, that he starts to slow down. And part of it may be because like you look at that Pedro Munoz fight, he fights at an insane pace, man. He's just spamming shots after shots after shots. Like he might not have knockout power, but man, he he can just throw volume. And he he wasn't throwing the volume against Piotr Yan, rightfully so. I mean, Piotr Yan, I think he might have the most knockdowns in the bantamweight division, one of the heaviest hitters. But here against TJ Dillashaw, I think it might look a little bit different. I think that he might have a bit more confidence to let his limbs go in terms of the striking, as, you know, as far as the striking is concerned. And then another area that's interesting is that TJ Dillashaw, former D1 wrestler, has he been taken down in the UFC? Yes, but has he truly been controlled? No. So that that kind of makes it interesting. But another factor you got to bring in is that one of the biggest weapons TJ Dillashaw is, has is his kicks. And kicking a lot against a guy like Aljamain, who's just really damn good at snatching up that single leg, turning it into a body lock, turning that into a back take, like... You might get off on 10 kicks, but maybe on that 11th, that's where Aljamain catches it, finds a way to take your back. And the thing about Aljamain that actually makes him special is his back control, man. I mean, when this guy takes your back, like, dudes often just don't get out. Dudes are stuck there. Dudes look helpless there. And we're not just talking about, you know, some bottom of the barrel guys. I mean, if Piotr Yan can't escape your back control, like that has to speak volumes because I hold Piotr Yan in super high regard. So you just have to show Aljamain a lot of respect for what he's good at. And he knows what he's good at. The thing is, I truly believe that if you can get Aljamain tired, if you do not get finished, you don't take a bunch of compromising damage from those positions. I do think that as fights progress, he does start to wilt a little bit. I don't I don't think that Aljamain likes getting hit. Not that anybody likes getting hit. I'm just saying, you know, you hit Piotr Yan with a baseball bat and he'll smile at you, whereas, you know, Aljamain Sterling, he might start shooting from a mile out. It might start looking kind of bad. He might start flopping around. So th that's what makes this intriguing because if you gave me the prime version of TJ Dillashaw, I actually think it might be a clinic. It's just that, this is not the prime version of Dillashaw. Dillashaw going into the Sanhagen fight was coming off a brutal knockout to, T uh, to uh, Henry Cejudo where he attempted to kill himself to make flyaway, tested positive for EPO, goes into that Sanhagen fight and tears his ACL, I believe, in the fight. Now he's coming off another year layoff. Now he's 37 years old, and you guys know 37 at heavyweight is one thing, but 37 at bantamweight that's pretty damn old. So I think we can say that TJ Dillashaw is no longer in his prime. But TJ Dillashaw, if he if he can come here and just perform like he used to perform, I think he's live. But I do have to favor Aljamain Sterling here with the youth and just him starting to feel more comfortable inside the octagon and knowing exactly where his strengths lie. Like, I know that he, you know, wanted no part of letting his hands go against the... Uh, against Piotr Yan that last time out, and I don't blame him, but I think it might be a little bit different here. I think that he might feel a little bit more confident 
getting off on a bit of that volume and kind of luring TJ into not necessarily a slugfest, but get TJ to feel confident throwing those kicks where you can potentially catch them. And it's going to be tough to take down a D1 wrestler like TJ. I definitely think so. It's just that you might miss the first 10, but if you can get that 11th and you can get his back one time, man, if TJ can reverse position, holy shit. But from what I've seen from Sterling, when guys get stuck in that position, they simply just aren't able to reverse. They aren't able to get out. He's just so damn good at backpacking people. So that, that, that makes this really an interesting fight. If this was like five years ago, I'd be betting TJ at these odds. And honestly, I don't blame people for taking the gamble here on TJ either. If they feel like, hey, like if you can just tap into your former self, because like in that Sanhagen fight, so live, I thought that Sanhagen won the fight, but on the rewatch, I kind of it was it was a bit closer than I remembered, man. Like TJ is a gamer. Like he had a clean flying knee. He got caught in an inverted triangle, which is interesting too, because you know. The, the funk master has a lot of unorthodox submissions. I mean, you saw that, that uh, was it the salute, the salute, the something stretch. Uh, I forgot. I keep forgetting the first word of the stretch, that knee bar from the back that he hit on, uh, on Cody Stamen. Like someone tell me what the fuck it's called. It's called, it starts with the S the something stretch. I always, I always fuck that up, but yeah, when he hit that, you know, that knee bar on, on, on a guy like Cody Stamen, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And, this guy can do some funky unorthodox stuff. So yeah, I'm really not too sure on this one. Um, just because TJ, you know, 37 at Bantamweight coming off the ACL and Aljamain knows where his strengths lie. So I'm going to lean Aljamain to, to make it happen, to steal some of these rounds, but not confident. I don't have a bet on this fight for a reason. I don't feel like I have the best read on this fight either. Because a few years ago, I actually would have been confident on TJ Dillashaw at these odds, but I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him anymore at his current state. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not too sure about this one, but I'll pick Aljamain to to defend his belt. But I think that regardless of who, yeah, there it is. My thank you, buddy. The uh, the Suleiman stretch, that one. I think that's what it's called, right? Something like that. Um, yeah. Tough, tough fight for me to call here between Aljamain and uh, and TJ, and I'm not going to bullshit y'all and act like I know what's going to happen. Even the fights that I'm confident in, I might be wrong on, right? But this one's just one of my, you know, this one and, like, the Gamrod Darius fight are the toughest ones for me to call. So, but, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick Aljamain to, to win this fight. Let's see what happens. But what I wanted to say was regardless of who wins this fight, both these gentlemen will be faded soon. I don't think that either is going to be a long-reigning champion. But if TJ wins, holy shit, he'll become a three-time bantamweight champ. That's that's history right there. Featured bout in the bantamweight division, we got the former champion Piotr Yanni, sixteen and three, taking on Sugar Sean O'Malley, who is fifteen and one. And currently, they got it. Sugar Sean, excuse me. Currently, they got it. Piotr Yan minus two eighty. The comeback on Sugar Sean is plus two thirty-five. So, I've heard a lot of chatter about. You know, Piotr likes to kind of ease into fights, take these first rounds off. And, uh, you know, if he does that and then he wins the third round, it could be up in the air in the second round. And then maybe Sean could squeak one out. But I, I think that I'm not entirely sure I buy that line of thinking for this fight specifically. And I'll tell you why. So in that last fight that, uh, 
that O'Malley had with Pedro Munoz. I actually put five units on Sean O'Malley against Pedro, and and I truly think that he was going to win that fight. But the reason that it wasn't as exciting in that first round, and actually two judges scored the first round for Pedro, of all people, and Pedro landed zero head strikes, which was kind of interesting, was just because Pedro was too hesitant to enter the range of Sean O'Malley. And Sean O'Malley wasn't going to force anything. He was going to wait for Pedro to enter the range. And from there, you know, Pedro's known for eating a lot of head strikes. But Pedro came in with a good game plan, just leg kick him and do nothing else. And there's also that myth about O'Malley having weak legs. I mean, is it a myth or is it not a myth? I mean, the two times his legs have been compromised, the Chito Vera fight. I mean, I think Chito is one of the hardest kickers in the division, just as Dominic Cruz. And I also think the Sukumta fight, what happened was, Listen, Sukumtut might not win a lot of fights, but Sukumtut's got a concrete head. I mean, there's a reason that Sukumtut, like, I've never seen him get knocked out. Like, the dude loses a bunch of fights, and he gets hurt all the time, but he never gets knocked out. And I think that O'Malley kicked him, and I think O'Malley's leg hurt from kicking Sukumtut in the head, you know? So, and it was two different situations. The Cheeto fight was Cheeto kicking O'Malley uh, in just the perfect nerve, and the Sukumtut fight was... O'Malley head kicking Sukumtut and just hurting his leg or his foot on the hard ass head of Andre Sukumtut. So people say that he's fragile, but I mean, Pedro Munoz is one of the hardest uh, calf kickers in the Bantamweight division, and Pedro Munoz didn't seem to have O'Malley compromised whatsoever. So I think people need to kind of, you know, pump the brakes as far as, you know, O'Malley's fragility. The thing here is that this guy, Piotr, yeah. He can give it. He's not going to be hesitant. Does he make his reads early? Yes, he does. But he's not going to be afraid of Sean O'Malley. And I'm not sitting here saying that Pedro was. I just think that Pedro's kind of getting up there in age. And, you know, maybe Pedro's kind of unwilling to get into the, the wars that he was once, you know, willing to willing to get into. Pedro used to just go life and death with everybody. I think now he's getting up there 36 years old. I think, you know, he's kind of thinking about the next part of his career, whereas I still think Piotr Yan has title aspirations. So I think Piotr Yan is going to get right in the face of Sean O'Malley. He's going to make Sean O'Malley fight. And, and here's one thing I know about O'Malley. O'Malley can give it. 100% O'Malley can give it. But the big question is, can O'Malley take it too? I'm not saying he can't. That's just my question. Whereas with Piotr Yan, I know Piotr Yan can give it. And I know Piotr Yan can take it. So that's kind of like what I'm thinking here is it's going to be fun and they're both going to be giving each other big shots. And listen, you catch someone on the sweet spot. It doesn't matter how tough you are. You could go out. So maybe this is the first time Piotr gets knocked out. It's just that if this is just, you know, a battle of wills and, you know, a battle of attrition and who wants it more and who's willing to dig deeper Based on what I've seen, I think Piotr Yan is that guy. So I don't really foresee Piotr Yan taking any rounds off, maybe starting a little bit slow to make his reads like he did in the Sanhagen fight, but he still clearly won the second and third uh, round, and this is a three-round fight. So had that Sanhagen fight been a three-round fight, that would have been a clear 29-28 for Piotr Yan. I don't even think he looked that bad in that first round. Just, you know, how to make his reads against a, a long-rangey fighter. Here he's, here he's up against another long-rangey fighter. The thing is, Sanhagen's proven to be able to take it all the way back to that Yuri Alcantara fight. Y'all remember when Yuri Alcantara smashed Sanhagen's face. Y'all remember when John Lineker, who was 
one of the most notorious knockout artists in the Bantamweight and Flyweight division was teeing off on uh, Sanhagen. Sanhagen's chin held up. So we know Sanhagen can take it. Do we know that O'Malley can take it? Like, I know if it's a pretty fight and O'Malley's not getting hit, he can create a masterpiece out there. He can look like an artist. I know that. And if he's making uh, Piotr miss, then holy shit. I'm just not convinced he's going to make Piotr miss. I think Piotr is going to be able to get off on his shots, you know, maybe mix in a takedown or two, but I'm not one of these guys that truly believes that the ground is this huge hole for O'Malley. I mean, the guy trains with fucking Tanquino Mendez every day. I think that his jujitsu is probably pretty decent. You know, I don't think that he's just some white belt at all. So, but it comes back to the Floyd Mayweather uh, quote. It's one thing to be able to give it, but can you take it too? I know O'Malley can give it, but can he take it too? I know Peter Yan can take it, but I also know Peter Yan. Uh, excuse me, I know Peter Yan can give it, but I also know Peter Yan can take it too. So I think that's the fundamental difference between the two. So for that reason, uh, I'm going to pick Piotr Yan to win this fight. And I don't think that they rushed O'Malley at all. I think that, you know, we're not dealing with the 23-year-old O'Malley, you know, who just came to the UFC, the skinny O'Malley. I think he's getting up there. What, he's 28, entering his prime. I think that this is a good time, you know, for him to have this fight in his career. So I'm really excited to see how it plays out. I think it'll be exciting at times, uh, you know, and I think O'Malley's going to get off on a lot of shots. It's just what's going to happen when it's Piotr's turn to get off on his. And that's where my big question lies. And for that reason, I have to I have to take Piotr Yanda win this fight. Now, next up in the lightweight division, hey, everybody do me a huge favor. Smash that like button for me, please. But next up in the lightweight division, we got a matchup between Benil Benny Dariush. He's 21 and four, taking on Matush Gamrot, who is 21 and one. Currently, they got it. Matush Gamrot, minus 195. The comeback on Benil Dariush is plus 165. Wow, this is such a goddamn good fight for a variety of reasons. So let's just get this. Uh, you know out the way real quick this fight stays standing and i'll tell you a weapon that's going to be there for benil dariush all day benil dariush has a nasty body kick one thing that you saw armin sarukian get off of get off on um against gamrot was that body kick and benil does it from the southpaw stand so it's going to be going right to that liver and benil's got some really nice combinations man i mean that uh Someone says not pronounced Matush. What, Mateusz? Either way, you guys know who I'm talking about. But I love that Rafael Cordero, King's MMA striking that Benil Dariush brings to the table. And, you know, Benil might not look like the most athletic guy, might have love handles, might have gray hair. Do not sleep on this guy. He is a killer. And he's been known for, you know, pulling off a lot of upsets. I remember cashing that. I think it was... Was it plus 160 against Rashid Magomedov back when Rashid was like 19 and 0 or 19 and 1? Like he's gone out there and he, he surprised a lot of people along the way, man. Um, so Benny on the feet, he's definitely going to be the more active guy. And, and those kicks are going to be there. The thing with, with Mateusz or Matush with Gamera is that the volume isn't going to be there like with Benny. But when Gamera lets things go, I think he's got a little sneaky power. And he's just really good about timing certain things, whether it's that that jab, whether it's that straight right hand. But the best part about Gamrot's game 
is he's got a very unorthodox low single leg and he seems to hit it on every single person he fights. I mean, if I just pull up the stats right now on, on, on Mateus Gamera, he's taken down every single person he's fought inside the octagon with that fucking low single. And it's not just your traditional low single, like, like the one that Randy Couture hit on uh, James Tony, like he'll like scoop it from down under, then lift it up over your head and, Man, and he's relentless. Like, when's the last time you saw a guy go in there against Armin Sarukian and attempt 21 takedowns? Like, like not only does that speak volumes to the effort of Gamrot, but it speaks volumes to the balls. I mean, what 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 balls to, to shoot on a guy like Armin Sarukian that many times? Like, I know Islam was able to land some takedowns, but Matush was out here fucking attempting 21 takedowns. He gave no fucks about the grappling of Armin Sarukian, regardless of who you scored that fight for. What makes this one interesting is this. Benil Dariush, you know, you guys know, and I was talking about his striking, how that body kick's going to be there, how he's also got some sneaky power, same like Gamrot, but... Don't sleep on Benil Dariush's black belt. I mean, this guy's been a black belt for a very long time, and he was known for not just in his MMA days, but in his jiu-jitsu days. He was one of these sneaky guys that came up the ranks and surprised a lot of people. But here's the thing. Um, it's the wrestling I'm worried about. It's not that Benil can't wrestle. Benil can 100% wrestle. Benil's taking a lot of people down. It's just that once we get past that initial stage and once we're kind of fatigued a little bit, can Benil still shuck off these takedowns? You know, will Benil be kind of content to play in the guard where Gamrock can kind of accrue a little bit of top control, not necessarily get off on some ground and pound. You know, I think that Benil is definitely very defensively sound on the mat. It's just, the longer this becomes a grind, that's where I kind of fear for, you know, like it, it, it sounds like I'm saying Benil's out of shape, and that's not what I'm saying at all. It's just more so that the kind of pace, just just wrestling wise, not striking wise, wrestling wise, that Gamrot puts on you, and the kind of pressure, like some of those reversals he hit on Sarukian is just something else. And with jujitsu and wrestling, they're two different sports. You're more willing to kind of be complacent in jujitsu a little bit if you can't get off on your positions you know lay on your back a little bit and those kind of things will let gamrot win the rounds but that being said if gamrot can't take him down or gamrot can't knock him out i think that benil is going to be getting off on the better combinations and again back to this point i've been making i think that body kick is going to be there for benil dariush but the thing i got to point out is on this current win streak that benil's been on none of these guys have really been attempting too many takedowns. Like no one's attempted more than two takedowns against him uh, on this current run he's on. And like I just said, Gamrod attempted 21 takedowns uh, against Sarukian. So that's a completely different look. And the last time that someone attempted more than three takedowns against Benil Dariush was Evan Dunham. And he was actually able to get it to a draw. According to the judges, he won the second and third round. It's just that first round was a 10-8. I mean, Benil almost killed him. Benil gets carried away sometimes. I mean, don't let the nice uh, personality fool you. Benil is a killer, okay? So that's what makes this intriguing. And another thing, another thing I, I, I don't want to forget to mention is Benil, didn't he recently, like, break his ankle? That's why he couldn't fight Islam Makachev? Like, so is he still going to, you know, 
be looking fresh? Like, or is he going to kind of be flat out there? Like, I need to know how Benil's going to look. Um, because Gamrot's got momentum, right? Now. Look, they both got momentum. They're both on win streaks. I'm just saying that Gamrot just performed recently against a, a young, hungry wrestler. Looked great in that fight, regardless of who you scored it for. I know that Gamrot can push a serious pace. I'm curious where Benil's at with that broken ankle injury he just had. I heard it was pretty serious. Um, and then I'm also curious what kind of success Gamrot's going to have with this unorthodox takedown game. He has that low single. You don't often see that in MMA. You see that a lot in college wrestling. You don't often see that in MMA, let alone successfully in MMA. So, yeah, interesting, interesting fight. I'm going to slightly lean towards Gamrot, though. But, I mean, I can't blame someone for taking a plus 165 on Darius. If Gamrot doesn't get these takedowns, I think Benil is going to be landing the better shots on the feet, man. And I, again, I think he's going to be hurting Gamrot with that body kick. It's just, I'm curious what happens on the mat. And again, not to discredit uh, Benil's amazing jujitsu, just more so, I think that Mateusz is able to scramble with the best of them. And he's just a guy that never say die right like is never willing to concede position is always scrambling no matter what whereas i have seen benil not always and rarely but i have seen benil get out hustled at times that's what i'm worried about here so my pick is gamma but no bet for me on, on this fight so before i talk about caitlin chukagan versus manon fioro and Bilal muhammad Rashawn brady i'd like to give a huge shout out to our sponsor DraftKings Sportsbook. So DraftKings Sportsbook, thank you so much for sponsoring today's episode of Half the Battle. So guys, UFC 280 is here. Get closer to the octagon with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Right now, new customers can bet $5 on UFC 280 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook, today is the day. Want even more action? You can also double your, your you can also double your winnings on a same game parlay. Meaning, if you got if you got Charles Oliveira and you want to parlay Charles Oliveira with Charles Oliveira by submission, you're allowed to do that here. Combine multiple bets like which fighter will win, how long the fight will last, and more. So like I said, the Oliveira fight, if that's one you're interested in. If you like my boy Bilal Muhammad, you want to bet Bilal Muhammad plus Bilal Muhammad by decision, you can parlay it. So like whatever combination you want to do, do it. They let you do that. It's pretty badass. So everyone who wants to boost their winnings, place a UFC 280 same game parlay today. So guys, Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code LEVY. That's my last name. You spell it just like Levi Jeans. Throw down $5 on UFC 280 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. That's code LEVY this Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, guys. Again, big thank you to uh, the DraftKings Sportsbook for sponsoring today's episode. Make sure you all take him up on that deal if you haven't already. And also, listen to my boy, Any Action Effie, right here saying, yo, we got 76 people in the house and only 26 of y'all have liked it. Come on, show me some love. 
smash that like button. I truly appreciate it. Now, next up, kicking off the main card in the flyweight division. We got a matchup between Caitlin Chukagan. She's 18 and 4, taking on Francis Manon Fioro, who is 9 and 1. And currently they got it. Manon Fioro, minus 215. The comeback on Caitlin Chukagan is plus 185. So Another interesting fight. The thing that I've always respected about Caitlin Chukagian is that she's just really damn good at winning these decisions. You know, even if she's not actually landing, you know, we used to make the jokes about her striking at the air and the tennis sounds and this and that. And I think they're valid things to bring up, but the judges eat that shit up. And as a result, she's been able to win so many decisions throughout her career. But I think another thing that needs to be pointed out is that you know, sometimes, like, it's not just the air striking and the tennis sounds. Like, I've seen Caitlin Chukagian get mean in there. I mean, I know y'all saw that fight that Caitlin Chukagian had with uh, the the little Shevchenko with Antonina. And, I mean, boy, did she put a whooping on her. So, if you're not quite on Chukagian's level, she will put it on you, man. Um, oh, here we go. My boy corrected me. It's the Suliev stretch. This is correct. Suliev stretch. I, I knew... That's what it was. So Suliev stretch. Thank you very much for for correcting us because I knew the other one sounded uh, off. And no offense to the other guy. I know you tried, but yeah, Suliev stretch. That's that's what I was talking about with the Aljamain uh, knee bar from the back. But anyways, back to Manon Fioro and Caitlin Chukagan. You know, I love the fact that Caitlin Chukagan, like, she's really paid her dues, man. I mean, and, and like, if you're not quite ready for her level she's definitely going to go out there and win that decision she's landed over 100 significant strikes on multiple occasions 127 significant strikes again uh, against viviara Ujo, 105 against irene aldana like that's some formidable competition so and also you know two inches taller uh three inch reach advantage so she's gonna she's got a lot going for her but i like what i've seen from manon fioro look i get it has she fought the best level of competition? No, but I mean, like every prospect was one was once a contender, and uh, excuse me, every contender was once a prospect, and every champion was once a contender, right? So, like, this is her step up in competition, and I do actually think that Manon Fioro has some qualities to to compete with Caitlin Chukagan. Look, I, I know she's a favorite, but I'm just saying for all of us that have been watching Chukagan for so many years and we're kind of viewing Manon Fioro as kind of, you know, the new girl on the block, you know, what makes her different than these other ladies that haven't been able to get past the Chukagan test? And, and I think that something that does make her different is she's able to not only match the output, but surpass the output uh, of Caitlin Chukagan and minimize the strikes that she absorbs as well. Her defense is 70%. Now, granted, we'll see where that number is after a fight like this. The takedown defense has been on, on point. You'd think, uh, you know, from her part of the world, the French fighters, mostly known for their striking. But, I mean, I, I've seen this girl go out there and land takedowns in every single one of her UFC fights, even land knockdowns before. And when she has been taken down, she's been able to get back up. So... I've been pretty damn impressed with this prospect. Now, do I think there's value at minus 215? Not really. I mean, and, and if you want to take Chukagan to find out if Manon Fioro is ready for that level, that step of a competition, I don't blame you either. Uh, you know, because when I'm talking about is there value, like, 
do I really think that minus 215 is so off that that you know that she should be minus 300 minus 400 that I got a better there no it's just like I think she's slightly more promising than Caitlin Chukagan I probably think she gets past this test but these women's MMA fights they can be close and Chukagan has a way with those judges man so yeah, I mean, if you want to take the shot on her just to, just to test out the prospect and see if she's ready, I get it. But my pick will be Manon Fioro because I simply think she's got the goods to compete with someone. Like, to, to beat you, Kagan, certain things must be in place. You have to at least match or surpass the volume. And Manon Fioro can do that, not to mention her defense is on point. She's brimming with confidence. And I just don't see too many big holes in her game right now. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not sitting here saying she's going to beat Shevchenko or Nunes or anything like that, but I think that Chukagian is a formidable opponent and a fantastic test for where Manon Fioro is at in her current career, and I think that this is a, a test that she's going to pass. So my official pick is going to be uh, Manon Fioro via decision. Now here we go. This is one I am really, really excited to talk about. My second bet of the card. So next up in the welterweight division. We got a matchup between Bilal, remember the name Muhammad. He's 21 and 3, taking on the undefeated Sean Brady, who is 15 and 0. And currently, they got it. Sean Brady minus 145. The comeback on Bilal Muhammad is plus 125. So, man, and, and I think that a lot of y'all that have been listening to me for a long time know that I've been riding that Bilal Muhammad money train. Uh, I mean, like pretty much every fucking fight the only time i've lost on him was uh against jeff neal but i think what we've won nine of the last 10 10 of the last 11 something like that so i mean if you've been betting on Bala muhammad you've been making money i mean that those dog odds against vicente luke those dog odds against steven wonderboy thompson just throughout his career man this guy's just been money and i've been one of his biggest supporters when people have been out here shitting on him i've been out here uh, laughing, laughing all the way to the bank with these uh, Bilal Muhammad gifts of lines that that we've been getting. Because yeah, is he gonna blow you away with one punch knockout power? Probably not. I, I, is he going to, you know, put on fight of the year candidates? I mean, most likely not. But is he gonna come out with a smart game plan and win the and do everything in his power to win the fight and absolutely bite down on this mouthpiece fight for your money tooth and nail and come out just prepared and smart and educated and do his homework beforehand yes he is i mean this guy is super smart and for not being the most athletic guy to make it to the top five of this division where you got guys like kamaru uzman in there like I, I'm I'm very inspired by a guy like Bilal Muhammad. Um, someone said something funny. One does one doesn't simply be, uh, beat a Muhammad in Abu Dhabi. You want to know something? I really didn't want to get into this because it's going to open up a whole can of worms. But since y'all are here, we love the controversy. And y'all y'all that been listening for a long time, y'all know my sense of humor, and you also know how big of a Bilal Muhammad supporter I am, right? Um, when, especially when everyone's out here always shitting on him. So, I, you know, when the fight got announced, I, you know, I made a, a little joke that I, and the same kind of joke I've been making for a long time. You know, I said, no guy named Muhammad is losing a judge's decision in Abu Dhabi. And yeah, it was just, you know, supposed to be a little tongue in cheek. haha. And motherfuckers were out here like quote tweeting me saying I'm Islamophobic and this and that. And, 
usually when people are wrong, you shouldn't take offense because you know the truth. But like in this day and age, when information spreads so fast and, you know, people don't want, even want to hear the the facts and they want to label you something like that. I was truly offended by that. I was like, and it was, it was that one fucking account that has the picture of the hot chick, but it's really a dude behind it. You know, that, that one weirdo calling me Islamophobic. Like I've been Bilal Muhammad's biggest supporter since how long? Like you're calling me that like, fuck you. Like you should, you should be ashamed of yourself to call someone like me those words. Cause the way I've always been is if you're a good person and you mean, well, you know, as long as that's all I care about. I don't care about your religion, where you come from, your skin color, your sexual orientation, how you dress, how you look. If you're a good person, that's all that matters to me. And I respect everybody. You know, that's what makes this world great. Everybody having differences of belief. So the fact that someone actually had the the gall and the nerve to label me those words when I've been one of Bilal Muhammad's biggest supporters. Y'all know my last name's Levy, right? Y'all know Bilal Muhammad's Palestinian. Y'all know that we're supposed to hate each other. And I've been one of the guys that wants to to break that. You know, I want, I'm one of the guys that wants to advocate for peace. I want our families to be able to eat dinner together and, you know, to prosper together. So I was really pissed off when someone called me that. Like, don't don't ever say some shit like that to me. You know, so I just had to get that off my chest. But yeah, listen, now let me give Sean Brady some credit because I think I've talked about Bilal enough, <laughs> you know, and, and we will talk more about the matchup. But let me give let me give Sean Brady some credit. So I bet Sean Brady his last fight against uh, Kiesa. And I got to say that, you know, he gave me a bit of a scare in that in that, you know, late second and all the third round, man, like the fact that like a guy like uh like Kiesa, you know, it's one thing if Kiesa backpacks you, okay, Kiesa's a backpacker, but for Kiesa to, you know, be getting off on some striking against you, that was sketchy. But let me tell you what I like about Brady. What makes Brady so unique is he's kind of this short, stocky, compact guy for the welterweight division and has got insane top control and is one of these guys that, you know, I've also heard he's got a vice grip with that guillotine with his Dars Anaconda series, his arm triangle. He's got a, a ridiculous squeeze. And don't sleep on his power, too. He's got some sneaky power as well. So I think that this is an interesting challenge for Bilal Muhammad. I believe that this is the first guy that's actually shorter than him that he fights. And I'm not one to uh you know to sit here and say that that's a disadvantage for sean brady i actually don't think it is a disadvantage because i think that sean brady makes his short compact stocky frame work great in, in the welterweight division and if sean brady gets on top of you man like you know it's a fat chance you're getting up man this guy's top control is ridiculous and, and the thing i've always admired about brady is he knows how to win fights he's a really smart competitor he just knows exactly where his strengths lie. He's not going to come out here, you know, throw spinning wheel kicks and fucking fight uncharacteristic. Like Sean Brady just knows exactly what he has to do, comes in very prepared and is a great competitor. And, you know, a lot of people are referencing, well, this guy beat Craig Jones in, in a grappling match. And yeah, that's true. I can't debate that. But I think that that's selective facts. The reason I say that is this. So. Did he beat Craig Jones in a in a grappling match? Yes, he did. However, 
let's let's you know let's bring up some other facts are there punches kicks knees elbows allowed in a grappling match no there are not and to take it a step further correct me if i'm wrong aren't leg locks craig jones like biggest thing like isn't that what he's known for there were no leg locks allowed in that match so basically sean brady laid it laid on top of him for the duration of the match which hey props to you man do what you got to do to win but i think it's a bit overblown had he survived some leg lock attempts against craig jones that's a different story but here against Bilal, i think that Bilal is a guy that is very hard to be held down as you saw in the damian maya fight um yeah, exactly. Thank you for confirming me. He beat Craig Jones in a match with no leg locks. Okay. You you got to bring that up if you're going to bring up the Craig Jones uh, grappling match, not fight, right? Um, so in that Maya fight, you know, Maya's a guy that has, what, somewhere among the most submissions in UFC history, you know, somewhere along there with Charles Dubronx and Hoist Gracie and all, the, and all those legends. And Charles Dubronx is a guy, excuse me, Damian Maya is a guy that took Kamaru Usman's back. Okay, like... Damian Maya didn't sniff a takedown against Bilal. He sniffed one early and Bilal popped right back up. After that, Bilal stuffed 20 takedowns. So, like, I know Bilal can stuff takedowns. And the times that he has been taken down in the past, he pops right back up. So, I think it's going to be actually kind of tough for Brady to just come out here and hold down a guy like Bilal Muhammad and let alone out-hustle Bilal Muhammad. But what I am worried about is this. If you look at the three losses that Bilal Muhammad has had, Alan Juban, Vicente Luque the first time, and Jeff Neal. They all have a common theme. To beat Bilal Muhammad, you must hurt Bilal Muhammad. Bilal Muhammad doesn't lose by getting out-hustled. I've never seen Bilal Muhammad get out-hustled in a fight, ever. So, I'm very curious to see if Sean Brady's going to come out here. I know he's got a sneaky left hook. I know he's got a sneaky big right hand. Doesn't use it as often because he's so dominant with his grappling, but I, I, I... know that the power is there for brady i want to see if brady's going to come out here and try to take the head off of Bilal muhammad but with that being said Bilal muhammad's footwork he's always changing stances he's always giving you different looks right when you think that you know he's popping you with jabs he's landing big body kicks and for those that say he doesn't uh hit or kick hard ask uh, vicente luque and vicente luque's coaches and teammates what uh, vicente thought about that body kick because uh vicente was compromised by that Ask us, Stephen. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Uh, let, let's just put it like this: Bilal took Luke to that meat grinder to the point where the next fight against Jeff Neal, Jeff Neal kind of, you know, I, I don't want to ever disrespect someone like Luke, who I hold in high regard, and say that Jeff Neal took out the trash, but Jeff Neal kind of feasted on the carcass a little bit and i think that when kevin holland fights wonder boy you saw the beatdown wonder boy took against Bilal. don't be surprised if kevin holland knocks out wonder boy but i I, uh, I digress i think that what makes Bilal so special is that he's not the most athletic guy he's not the you know he probably doesn't have the, the highest vertical jump you know it probably doesn't have the fastest what 40 meter dash but the guy up here mentally cerebrally like this guy is very intelligent this guy can come up with the right game plans you think he's going to strike that's when he takes you down you think he's going to take you down that's when he strikes and he's got insane cardio to go the full three or five round distance as we just saw in his last fight 
he was just as fresh in that fifth round as he was in that first, and he overcame adversity in that third round. He got caught with a big left hook by Luque. You know Luke. You know how many people Luque has knocked out with that left hook? Luque knocked out Tiago Maheta Santos with a left hook, let alone Bilal the first time. To, so to overcome the mental hurdles of a guy that knocked you unconscious in Madison Square Garden and then to come back and eat that same shot in the third round – and still be able to land your takedown, still be able to land those big body kicks, still be able to win the next two rounds and and win a win a clear four to one decision. I mean, I tip my cap to a guy like Bilal Muhammad. I I just love the intelligence. I love the smarts, and more importantly than that, I love the the determination. You have to truly compromise Bilal Muhammad to to beat him. You have to truly hurt him. You have to truly finish him, and. Let's talk about this. This is this is another talking point. So if you had to emulate a guy like Sean Brady, who's just this, this short, stocky, fire hydrant powerhouse with this insane top game, this top control is absolutely ridiculous, right? And like, who who am I gonna get? Who am I gonna emulate to to get a guy like that? Like who's just unique in the weight class? Like there's not another Sean Brady in the welterweight division. So how about this? This dude, Bilal Muhammad, goes to Abu Dhabi a month in advance, which is great just to acclimate, but let's take it a step further. He brings in the legendary, the UFC Hall of Famer, Habib Nurmagomedov, to be his main training partner in preparations for Sean Brady. You got to deal with relentless takedowns? Habib Nurmagomedov's got you covered. You got to deal with insane top control, suffocating pressure, I think that Habib Nurmagomedov is going to give you the right look. So if Sean Brady can get past this, God bless him. But I think that no one's exempt from that first L. Uh, I mean, if you stick around long enough, I think if even the great Habib or John Jones stick around long enough, they'd take their first L's too. But I think it's first L time for Sean Brady this weekend. I think it's going to be a close, competitive, tough fight. But I think when both guys are tired and it's time to dig deep, assuming no one's been finished, that's where I think Bilal Muhammad shines. And that's where I think he's going to pull away in the second and third round and just show that he's on a different level right now than Sean Brady. I think Brady's got a very bright future. And I'm a fan. Thank you for cashing that Kiesa ticket for me. I'm grateful. But I think that right now is Bilal's time. And to take it a step further in a fight that you could argue should be a pick em, well, I was plus 125, and it's not often that I fuck up on my lines. Usually I take pride in how I eight times out of ten beat the closing line, right? I bet it at plus 116. I mean, I thought there was, there was value at pick a mod, so I thought plus 116 was good. He's plus 125 now, so I might add more, but right now I got two units on Bilal at plus 116. And I think that he shows his spirit. I think he shows his uh, determination. And I think he comes out here and defeats the undefeated Sean Brady. So give me Bilal Muhammad for the win. And I think Brady will 100% be back. He'll learn from this and come back better. Now, next up in the middleweight division, I got another bet on this fight. So we got Mahmoud Muradov. He's 25-7, and seven, representing Uzbekistan, taking on Kyle Bohio, who was 12-1, representing Brazil. Currently, they got it. Kyle Bohio, minus 200. The comeback on Mahmoud Muradov is plus 170. So 
I actually bet uh, Mahmoud Murdov in this fight. I took him two units at plus 190. I thought that that was a very good line for him. Let me tell me tell you why. So I got to admit, I respect Kyle Ohio a lot. You know, I was very grateful he cashed that. I believe it was a dog bet for me um, against uh, Gadzi Omar Gadziev, who's also on this car. But I, I just kind of think that, you know, Gadzi way too small for middleweight, hence him dropping the welterweight on this card. And the next fight against uh, Armin Petrosian, who I think is a, a, a fun striker, you know, I just think these guys are a little bit too inexperienced right now, kind of green, whereas before I talk about Mahmoud, let me just say what I like about Bohio on the feet kind of has a bit of a karate style fight. So with his hands down, but has good distance and, you know, he's relentless with his takedown attempts. And once he takes the back, you know, similar, similar to Aljo for the most part, not always guys often don't get out from those positions and he's able to choke some people out. And he's just a smart guy. Doesn't take any unnecessary risks does just what he needs to do to win fights. So I respect that about Bohio, and I'm a fan. I think that he's a very bright prospect for sure. But with Mahmoud Muradov, man, I mean, I think that this guy had the Gerald Mershart fight never happen, and if Mahmoud was just coming off a big layoff, I think that these odds would be flipped, man. And I think that there's a lot of recency bias just because he had one bad performance, you know, against Gerald Mershart, who – Gerald Mershaw's got the most submissions in middleweight history. Gerald Mershaw from time to time will make really guys look good. I mean, like Alex Pereira wasn't out here knocking out uh, Bruno Silva, but Gerald Mershaw dropped him and, and finished him, you know? And from time to time, Gerald Mershaw will surprise you. He's such a vet. Those, those, those veteran tactics, he, you know, his methods are tried and true. And sometimes he's going to give these guys vet lessons, and that's what happened in that Murata fight. Whereas here, Kyle Bohio, less experienced than Gerald Mearshart. And there's certain things that need to happen. You know, on the feed, I think the volume difference is huge for Mahmoud Murata, not to mention the technique difference, not to mention Bohio fights with his hands down. I think that Bohio is going to be getting jabbed up badly to the face, to the body. And then when... uh. Mahmoud finds uh, his opening for that big straight right. That's going to be there, not to mention the calf kicks, another big weapon. And how's his takedown defense? Like, prior to the Mershart fight, he fought two D1 wrestlers in a row, and he stuffed all their takedowns, man. And then the times that he has been taken down, he seems to pop back up. Like, I know the Gerald Mershart fight, I don't want to sit here and discredit Mershart and call it an off night by Mahmoud Muradov. But I just think that Mershart and Bohio are two different guys. Like, Mershart's got how many fights does he have? Like, the guy is just so experienced, paid his dues. Whereas Bohio is just, you know, he's a green prospect with a bright future, 100%. But for him to be minus 200 here, I, I just think it's a bit of a stretch. So, and there were times in, the, in those fights with, you know, Godzi Omar Godzi was just way too small. The size difference was huge. Hence, this guy dropping the 70 for his next fight. The Armin Petrosian fight, I mean, how many fights does Armin Petrosian have, man? I mean, Armin Petrosian, this dude's had less than 10 pro fights, man, and, and he, he comes from a, a striking background. He's, I just think that this is a different level of competition here. And also, there was a moment in that Armin Petrosian fight where Kyle Bahio took his back, but he was able to slip off. Armin Petrosian gets back up to his feet. The commentators were saying, man, Bohio, Kyle's looking, uh, you know, Kyle's breathing hard here. Kyle's kind of fatiguing a little bit. But unfortunately, 
Armin Petrosian can't stuff a takedown to save his life. I think that Makhlun Murdov can stuff takedowns, man. I mean, he did it against two D1 wrestlers prior to the Gerald Mershart fight. So, yeah, are there certain places I don't want Mahmoud Murdov to be in this fight? Absolutely. I don't want Kyle Bahio on his back. I don't want Kyle Bahio on top of him for extended periods of time. Like, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. But I think that the volume difference is going to be big here on the feed. I think that this is the first time that Bohio is actually going to get hit in a UFC fight. I think this is the first time his takedowns are going to get sprawled on. And don't be surprised to see uh, Bohio start to gas out a bit, shoot from a mile out, and, and, and see Mahmoud Murdoch get back on track. And even if I'm wrong, I, I had to take a two-unit shot at plus 190 odds. I just think that this is such recency bias. And again, I think these odds would have been flipped had the Mershart fight had the Mershart fight not happened. So give me Mahmoud Murdov to outland this guy, jab him up, stuff the takedowns. If he does get taken down, pop back up and you know, show him that hey, like I still am that prospect that people thought I was prior to the Mershart fight. And Bohio will be back. I think Bohio's got a bright future as well. But I had to roll the dice and, and take this underdog shot on uh, on Mahmoud Muradov. So let's see, let's see if he makes the mo- let's see if he makes the most of it. Now, next up in the two hundred five pound division, man, this card's stacked. Everybody, do me a favor, smash that like button for me. We got Volkan Uzdemir. He's eighteen and six, representing Switzerland, taking on Nikita Krylov, who is twenty eight and nine, representing Ukraine. I'm not sure if he's still representing Ukraine because I, I remember he he walked out with uh someone said by flip do you mean pick him no by flipped I mean that um uh, that uh Muradov would have been like a minus two hundred favorite had the Mershart fight never happened that's that's what I mean by flipped um but oh yeah but I was saying I'm not sure if Krylov represents Ukraine anymore because last few fights it's been showing like a a world flag or something has he hasn't been walking out with his flag so i don't know what the deal is behind that um someone inform someone pardon my ignorance and inform me but either way i really really like how nikita krillow has been looking these last few fights like i know there's been some l's along the way but let's put some context into how these l's went down so firstly i know a lot of y'all that heard me on the last time Krilov fought how big I was on him against Alexander Gustafsson. Like people were saying that that was a dog or pass situation. I was saying favor to pass. That was my biggest bet of the card. I even went on the UFC um, gamblers perspective show with uh, Kalikas and and Gianni and, and James Lynch. Thank, thanks to them for having me on UFC Fight Pass, and and I gave out Nikita Krilov as a bet on that on that fight um, against Gustafsson. I was super confident there, and. The thing about it was that I bet Nikita Krilov, you know, minus what, minus 185, 89, minus 190, something around there, super confident there because Gustafsson's completely washed up. Whereas, you know, Volkan, I don't think he's washed up, but I also don't think that he's necessarily in his prime. I think he might be slowly exiting his prime, but I still think he's got some, you know, a couple more good years left in him. Uh, so what I like about these last few Krilov fights, and let's start with the Ovin St. Preux win. I mean, that was a 
a, a rematch. He avenged the loss. The first time he got submitted with a Von Flew. The second time goes out there in Atlanta, Georgia, submits him in the second round. The Glover Teixeira fight was a split decision back and forth fight like where both guys had their moments and oftentimes when you know you guys remember that run that glover Teixeira was on submitting everybody and in the past i think nikita krilov would have made some bonehead mistakes on the mat and got and got submitted and he was able to survive some really bad spots with glover Teixeira. i thought that that was a very good performance the johnny walker fight at the time man Johnny Walker was knocking everybody out, and Nikita Krylov didn't fight with his ego. He took the path to least resistance and showed off a pretty a pretty nice wrestling game, was able to out-wrestle Johnny Walker for the majority of that fight. The Magomed Ankali fight. Now, I know he took an L there, but let me say this. like He he took round one unanimously against Magomed Ankali, and like usually like guys don't fight that competitive with anka leave like usually anka leave is clearly a level above all these guys and like i thought that krilov fought very competitively like i thought that that was a good honest fight between him and magomed and it just showed the level that he's on and who he's evolving into so i thought it was a good performance and then the next one against paul craig dude he was fucking smashing paul craig like so one can even make the argument that paul craig went out at points in that fight it's just that you know, you fuck around long enough and Paul Craig's guard and Paul Craig might submit you. Um, and and let me say this. This is going to be a controversial statement, but listen closely to what I am saying. I thought that Krilov looked better against Craig than Volkan did. Now, I know someone's going to be like, what do you mean? Krilov lost and Volkan won. But like Krilov was smashing Paul Craig, man. Krilov, like, there were clips where it looked like Paul Craig, like, actually got knocked out and then got woken up with the follow-ups. Like, Nikita Krilov showed big balls, went right into his guard and just started grounding and pounding him away and eventually got caught. But I don't think that that, you know, was a sign of, oh, like, firstly, I don't think Volkan Uzdemir is triangle triangling anybody. <laughs> Let, let's just get that out the way. But I thought Nikita whooped his ass and then just got caught. <laughs> that's pretty much all it was and then the gustafson fight he treated a washed up gustafson exactly how you're supposed to treat a washed up gustafson knocked him out in slightly over a minute whereas these last few fights from vulcan man a lot of people thought he lost the rackage fight i'm actually not one of those people i thought he won that fight um very good calf kicks there the yuri prohaska fight man i mean dude like yuri toyed with him and yuri sent him into the fifth dimension the magomed and Khalif fight i didn't think was even close magomed was out there dropping him and then the paul craig fight i gotta admit that Volkan followed the right game plan not following him to the ground but i can't sit here and say that it was the most inspiring performance that i've seen from Volkan. it was the mere compared to some of his uh past fights man i mean like back in the day Volkan was a dude that, like, do you remember when he first came in the UFC and he just slept Misha Sarkuna, slept Jimmy Manua, got that title shot against uh, Daniel Cormier, did good in the first round, had the fight with Anthony Smith where he, like, won the first three rounds and then got submitted in the last one. A lot of people thought he beat Dominic Reyes, who was super hot at the time. So, like, Volkan at one point was one of the, you know, hottest prospects in the division. But I think that despite coming off this win, I think that he is fizzling out a bit, whereas I kind of think that Nikita Krilov is showing the best version of himself, and he's really putting all elements of his of his game together. I kind of view 
Volkan as like a traditional kickboxer, whereas I view Nikita Krilov, you know, he's got kind of that Kyokushin style. He, he, he blends his, his punches to his kicks, to his takedowns. A lot of submissions on his record, too. Um, maturing a lot. The submission defense, despite the Paul Craig fight, I mean, I don't think too many people are getting out of that. I think it's gotten better, too. So I, I, I just see uh, Paul Craig, I mean, I just see uh, Nikita Krilov coming out here and winning this fight. Not sure there's much value. I think the line is probably about accurate. But, yeah, my pick is going to be uh, Nikita Krilov uh, to win this fight. Now, next up in the featherweight division, this should be a, this should be a banger right here. We got a matchup between Zubera Tukugov. He's twenty-five and one, representing Russia, taking on Lucas Almeida, who is fourteen and one, representing Brazil. And currently, they got it. Zubera Tukugov minus one fifty-five. The comeback on Lucas Almeida is plus one thirty-five. So, very very interesting fight because. Lucas Almeida is a Brazilian berserker. I mean, this guy goes balls to the wall. This guy is a, a finisher through and through. He's going to come out there, try to throw some big concussive blows. Also happens to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I mean, the way he handled his regional opponents was exactly how you're supposed to. Had a great fight with uh, Zell Huber on Contender Series. I know Zell Huber shot the bed in his debut, but I think it was kind of like a Tyler Santos versus Mara Romero Barella type situation where just... I mean, he didn't fight. It's not like he fought his heart out and lost. Like he, he didn't let it go. So I actually look for him in his next fight. If he actually does let it go, I think the kid's talented. And I thought him and Lucas Almeida had a good fight. My thing with Lucas is he goes balls to the wall. And as a fan, you love to see it. And certain guys, if they can't take it, they're going to get knocked out. But with Zuba, Zuba's always been super fast twitch, has a nasty counter left hook. Also, you know, him being Russian, he can mix in some takedowns too. And he's fought the far better level of competition between the two of them. I mean, we're talking about a guy that, you know, went to a split decision with Hatham Moicano, landed six takedowns against Lerone Murphy, the only guy in the UFC to not defeat Lerone Murphy. Um, excuse me. The only guy in the UFC to not lose to Leron Murphy, <laughs> let me correct myself, uh, knocked out Kevin Aguilar in the first round. The Hakeem Dawadu fight was a split decision. The Ricardo Ramos fight, man, I think Ra Ricardo Ramos is a young phenom. And, like, Ricardo Ramos, like, I mean, Zuba was looking explosive in that fight. Zuba's hands were looking on a different level, man. And uh, that was also the highest output that Zuba's had in any of his UFC fights. So I thought it was a big step in the right direction the criticism and the reason i say it was a big step in the right direction is because a lot of times zuba's output has waned as fights progress so the fact that and, and he did lose the third round in that fight but the fact that he finally got his strike count up a little bit more i think it was a big step in the right direction and the way these two match up is lucas almeida you know assuming he fights characteristically he's gonna go right after zuba tukugov and could he clip him? Possibly. But on the flip side, that's going to leave those openings for Zuba to land that 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 nasty, sharp counter left hook to change levels and, and, and mixing those entries to those takedowns. So, but, but here's one thing. I could definitely see Zuba dropping Lucas Almeida, possibly getting a knockout, and I can also see Zuba taking down Lucas Almeida. But if Zuba expends a lot of energy and Lucas Almeida is still somewhat fresh in that third round, 
that's where things could get kind of interesting. That's where maybe Lucas Almeida can kind of put it on him a little bit down the stretch of the fight. So that's what I'm very intrigued to see uh, what happens. But I think that despite the output being on the lower side for Zuba, I just think that fast twitch, that that sharp left hook, the ability to mix in those takedowns, his experience fighting, fighting much higher level competition should carry him through here. So I'm going to go with Zubera Tukugov to, I'm going to say either knockout or decision. I don't think he submits Lucas Almeida, but I'm going to say knockout or decision. Now, next up in the lightweight division, we got a matchup between the newcomer Yamato Nishikawa. Yamato is a dope-ass name, by the way. He's 21, 3, and 6, representing Japan, taking on Magomed Mustafaev, who's 14 and 4, representing Russia. Currently, they got it. Uh, I don't see it in DraftKings Sportsbook, but in other books, they got it minus 550. Magomed Mustafaev, the comeback on Yamato is plus 400. So conventional wisdom says that Magomed Mustafaev should come out here and possibly blow this kid out the water. I mean, like the level of competition difference is huge. I mean, we're talking about a guy in uh, Mustafaev who went to a split decision with Brad Riddell, who's a top 15 guy, knocked out Rafael Fiziev, who's a top, you know, uh, 15 top 10 guy, I believe. Um, it's just much more experience at the UFC level. But this kid, uh, Yamato, you know, he's he's been super active. He's only he's allegedly 19 years old. You know, sometimes those ages don't tell the whole story. He's allegedly 19 years old. He's got a big, big record. Um, he's fought a lot more opponents, but he's fought much lesser quality opponents like substantially lesser quality opponents the level of competition has been extremely suspect you could arguably call it a padded record it's just i don't know what to expect because like i haven't seen his last few fights and, and a kid that young has got to be making improvements every single time but the fights i was able to watch on yamato are th- kind of things that probably won't fly at the ufc level you know rolling for imanaris and you know, flopping to his back and doing things like that. I, I just don't see it going well. But at the same time, with him only allegedly being 19 years old, and the last fight I saw of him was a few fights back, maybe he's drastically changed. Maybe he's drastically improved. Maybe he is ready. But based on what I've seen right now and the odds reflecting that, I do have to go Magomed Mustafaev. It's just tough because, you know, he barely fights. But when he does fight, he tends to look good, you know. Um, the guy, you know, he's got other things going on, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but super explosive guy, Magomed Mustafaev. Nasty kicks, the spins, the big punches. And from time to time, he'll mix in a takedown as well. So I'd just be curious to see, you know, with this guy, Yamato, the the kinds of opponents he's been fighting, like even the guys he's fought with good record, they're all like 40 years old, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, and just winning by arm bars, you know, going for Imanari rules. I, I, if he can do it, props to him. I'm just not going to predict him to do it. So I'm, I'm going to go with Magomed Mustafaev uh, to win this fight. Now, next up in the welterweight division, we got a matchup between Abu, uh, Abubakar Nurmagomedov, he's 16 and 3, taking on Gadzi or Margadziev, who's 13 and 1. So we got a little Russia on Russia crime here. Currently, they got it. Uh, Abubakar minus 175. The comeback on Gadzi is plus 150. Firstly, let me say that I'm happy to see Gadzi drop to 170 because 
Hey, y'all, leave me some more comments and, and smash that like button for me. And if you're not subscribed, please do me a big favor and subscribe. But, yeah, I, I was really glad to see Omar Gaziev drop to 170 because, man, like, the size difference between him and Bohio in that in that last fight was was truly something. It looked like, uh, you know, I was thinking that I was thinking the kid could drop to 55 when, when I saw that fight, man. And another thing I got to say, um, I'm not convinced this dude, God, he's no six foot one. He looked five ten to me. The thing with Abubakar, despite the fact that he never fights, he's got the meat and potatoes Russian style, man. And, you know, that last fight, he fought against my brother, uh, Jared Gooden. Shout out to Jared, you know, got back on track this weekend. Uh, had a really tough fight against a, a veteran and got the second round TKO, you know. He he took it, you know. He, he was taking some shots, but the other guy uh, refused to continue. So that's a TKO win. So props to Jared. I think a couple more wins and he's back in there. And Abubakar threw a lot of surprises at Jared, you know, um, coming out there using a jab-heavy game plan. That was something that we didn't expect. You know, we expected a lot more takedown attempts, and all the takedown attempts did get stuffed until the final round. Uh, but I just think that it's kind of your classic Russian coast on the Abubakar side, whereas with Gadzi, Omar Gadziev, a little bit more unorthodox. You know, I mean, you saw, didn't he? Uh, didn't he get, yeah, he got that knee bar on contender series and also he doesn't train in russia i'm pretty damn sure that this guy's out here training in france so kind of getting some different looks out there and man some of his regional fights uh are kind of suspect you know you want to fight via refusal to fight <laughs> like so I, i'm just not too sold on omar Gaziev. you know maybe some opportunistic submissions are past the victory but i think that Although Abubakar isn't going to blow you away with any flash or, you know, anything just too special. He's just got his meat and potatoes fundamentally sound. And I think that should be enough to come out here and uh, and win a decision. So give me Abubakar for the win. Now, next up in the middleweight division, we got a match between Armin Petrosian. He's 6-2, and two, taking on AJ Dobson, who is 6-1. and one. And currently... At DraftKings Sportsbook, they got it. Armin Petrosian minus two hundred five. The comeback on AJ Dobson is plus, uh, excuse me, plus one seventy five. So, what makes this fight interesting is that both guys are relatively inexperienced for, you know, for UFC standards. Armin Petrosian, obviously, he's got that kickboxing background, but you know what? He's been in there with some serious competition in the UFC. Like for his first two fights went in there with robocop actually won the fight like controversial or not he still went out there and landed 127 significant strikes against robot a book against robocop and survived some pretty bad spots as well so i i really respect that on the petrosian side and then with aj dobson he's kind of one of these guys that you know he just had a super easy regional scene experience where didn't fight anybody, ran through all these guys in basically under a minute, you know. The contender series fight was the first time he fought anybody relatively decent, and that relatively decent guy was 6-0, and which is, you know, very inexperienced as well. Another first-round finish. First time he went out the first round, you know, lost the fight to Jacob Malcoon, but no, no shame in losing to Jacob Malcoon. You all know the kind of pace that that guy pushes, and I can tell you right now, that you know just looking at the stats let, let me pull up the stats real quick so jacob malcoon in that uh aj dobson fight my boy jacob malcoon goes out there 
and, and attempts 16 takedowns, goes six for 16. I can just already tell you Armin Petrosian is not going to do that, so it's a completely different dynamic. But that being said, that doesn't mean that AJ Dobson is not going to still you know, blow his load early and then have nothing left. But in saying that, Armin Petrosian has been stopped in the first round before, and usually his first round, he's a very slow starter. Even in the fights that he hasn't been stopped in the first round, he's been put in compromising situations. So he's vulnerable early on um, in, in fights, and that's where I think a guy like A.J. Dobson could capitalize. Uh, so if you're taking the shot on A.J. Dobson, like I understand, like A.J. Dobson is known for all those first-round finishes. His opponent's been finished in the first round before, and his opponent is uh, a very slow starter. So A.J. Dobson's live early on with potentially knocking him out or landing some takedowns or something like that. But the longer this fight goes, if Armin Petrosian's not badly compromised and he can start getting into his rhythm, that's where I think he's going to pick apart AJ Dobson, pull away down the stretch and, and, and go out there and win this fight. So I don't see any value on the odds on Armin Petrosian because I think he's going to have to overcome some serious shit in that first round. And I'm not, not convinced he survives it. But if he does, I think he wins this fight. I'm just unwilling to lay that price on him. So, yeah, it's a pass for me, but I'll, I'll pick Armin Petrosian. Now, next up in the flyweight division, we got a matchup between Muhammad Makayev, he's 7-0, taking on Malcolm Gordon, who is 14-5. Currently, they got a Muhammad Makayev minus 730. The comeback on Malcolm Gordon is plus 530. So, yeah, you know, this fight's a, a mismatch, and I'm very, very impressed with Muhammad Makayev. You know, he had to prove a lot to me because people always talked about his amateur, uh, you know, career and the extensive amateur record he had. And I always kind of viewed it like that Allen Iverson quote, like, like you talking about practice. Like, I know we ain't talking about practice, right? Like, let, let's see what's up at the pro level. And man, at the pro level, you know, he ran through a couple cans, but when he got to the UFC, like the way he treated uh, Cody Durden, like that was serious, but okay, but you can be like, yeah, but that was under a minute. What happens if a fight gets extended? Well, his very next fight against the former LFA champ, like this dude goes out there and sets the record for not only most uh, takedowns attempted in flyweight history, but most takedowns landed in flyweight history. He went 12 for 26. So what that shows me is this kid is not only able to be a first-round finish finisher, but he's also got that style I love where he can just attempt takedown after takedown after takedown. And with Malcolm Gordon, look, I'm glad that he somewhat got his confidence back those last two fights. You know, I think he definitely needed them. But I still I still think that his chin is extremely questionable. I think his heart is in question as well. I think that in that Figueredo fight, Figueredo had full mount. And instead of just staying in full mount, Figueredo decides to drop back for a leg lock, give up position, and lose the fight. So those are the kind of mistakes that a guy like Mohamed Makayev is not going to be making. And, you know, and then the other win, the, the kid got injured like right away. So it's cool that Malcolm Gordon, you know, a longtime vet, got some wins under his belt. Happy for him, but that all ends here. I think that Muhammad Makayev is going to come out here and I, I think he's going to brutally knock him out. I think people forgot about the chin of uh, Malcolm Gordon. His chin is probably one of the worst chins on the roster. And, um, yeah, I'm not any higher on him than I was back when I was talking all the shit I was a, a few, uh, you know, fights back. So I think Muhammad, by whatever he wants, if you want to, you know, stamp his passport, give him some sky miles, some frequent flyer miles, and take him to Suplex City, 
that's fine too. You want to test your striking, flying knees, big punches, knock them out. That's fine too. You want to test your, you want to, you want to go out there and submit a jujitsu black belt. I'm not against it. So I think Muhammad Makayev shines in this fight and uh, continues his impressive UFC run. Now, last but not least, I got a bet on this fight. So this is my fourth and final bet for UFC 280. In the Bantamweight division, we got Lena Landsberg. She's 10 and 6, taking on Carol Hosa, who is 15 and 4. Currently, they got it. Carol Hosa, minus 260. The comeback on Lena Landsberg is plus 220. So I did my job. I mean, I, I took Carol Hosa at minus 225. Now she's minus 260. So I, I'm very happy about that. And Carol Hosa, you know, you guys know, you guys know the angles that I love to play, whether it be the relentless wrestlers, whether it be, you know, fading someone on their way out, which this could fall into that category, but this falls into another category I love, which is just that huge output difference. I love when you can double, triple up your opponent on strikes, like like Hayoni Barcelos did to Trevin Jones the other day. I just love that kind of shit. And uh, when you're talking about the kind of numbers that Carl Hosa's put up, I mean, Three separate occasions that uh, she's landed 120 significant strikes or more, 171 significant strikes against Procopio plus a knockdown, 120 significant strikes against Mello. Now against uh, Jocelyn Edwards, she didn't uh, land uh, 100 significant strikes, but you know what she did do? She went four for six on takedowns, so she's showing a well-rounded game against Betchkoya. 125 significant strikes. Now, I get it; she lost to uh, Sarah McMahon, and I was wrong about that fight. You know, I picked her there, but I got to give her credit, man. Like she survived some really bad spots. We know McMahon's a, a very is a silver silver uh, silver medalist Olympic wrestler, and in that third round, Carol Hosa took down the Olympic wrestler twice. It's only counted as once, but I saw two takedowns there, and I just think that the variety of the strikes is going to be a big thing here. You know, the way she mixes her punches to her kick, to her knees, to the clinch, the entries to the takedowns. I think she's so much more well-rounded, whereas Lena Landsberg, I respect her. She's a true vet of the game. I just think that she's simply, you know, getting up there in age. You know, my girl, Carl Hosa, is only 27, whereas Lena Landsberg is... 40 you know so 12 to 13 year age gap depending on when they're about to turn their next uh you know when they're about to have their next birthdays and you know the one big concern with lena landsberg you know i'm not worried about the output you know the most strikes she's ever landed in a ufc fight actually more impressive than i thought one time she landed 80 strikes against lucy pulova but besides that i mean she averages you know under three strikes landed per minute per fight. And when you're dealing with Carl Hosa, she lands close to seven strikes landed per minute per fight. The one thing you got to worry about with Lena Landsberg is the same thing you've always had to worry about, her nickname, the Elbow Queen. She's got some pretty damn good elbows, especially from the clinch or her step-through elbows. Like, you know, and she's got decent Muay Thai too. I don't think that she's going to be anywhere near as fast um, or dynamic as Carl Hosa at this point. It's just got to watch out for those elbows but that's it there's no takedown threat here there's no volume threat here there's no big power threat here either it's just those goddamn elbows you know and if we're wary of that i think we got an answer for that too i mean we got big knees in the clinch as well and even like people were talking about that fight that lena landsberg had with panikians out how 
it was closer than they thought. It's like, but was it really closer than they thought? The only reason that it was 29-28, not 30-27, is because Lena Landsberg landed one big elbow that dropped uh, um, Panny Kianzad in that fight. Aside from that, she lost every other minute of that fight, not to mention Panny Kianzad is more known for just her boxing for MMA, whereas Carl Hosa has the complete Muay Thai package, not to mention she can mix in takedowns too. So... I uh, bet uh, Carl Hosa at minus 225 to win one unit, and that's a first bet of the card. So, yeah. Wow. So we got through the card. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on this very special edition of Half the Battle. Smash the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Before I get out of here, let's talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. So besides the main event, I think the fight to watch has got to be Piotr Jan Vershawn O'Malley, man. I mean, I think that some of us consider Piotr Jan to be the uncrowned champ. Sean O'Malley, I mean, this guy has been climbing his way through the ranks. You know, a lot of people have been criticizing the level of opposition that he's been fighting. Well, I know you ain't criticizing the level of opposition he's fighting here because Piotr Jan is number two in the world, and it's just an intriguing matchup stylistically. Two strikers, you know, Sean O'Malley with that kind of long range. He wants to stay pretty, wants to keep it on the outside, and Piotr Jan wants to get right in your face, make it dirty, is able to win rounds with big power, knockdowns, everything. So Piotr Yan versus Sean O'Malley is my fight to watch. And my fighter to watch is Bilal Muhammad, man. I mean, listen, a lot of people have been criticizing Bilal Muhammad, saying he's boring, saying he's this, saying he's that. I'm guessing if you're saying those things that you haven't been uh, riding the money train, what has he won, like uh, 11 of his last 13 fights or something like that? Like you've been... You've been laughing all the way to the bank if you've been cashing, uh, if you've been betting Bilal Muhammad. I mean, we're talking about dog odds against Luke, dog odds against Wonderboy, reasonable prices against some of these other guys. So, and dog odds once again here. And he's got a very tough opponent against, uh, you know, a very tough and just a unique opponent, Sean Brady. The first time that Bilal fights someone that's shorter than him, the first time that's really just a a top control guy with a nasty squeeze and power on his feet and riding the the confidence of being an undefeated fighter doesn't know what it means to lose like this is a big test for Bilal and if he passes it he's in the conversation so for that reason Bilal Muhammad is my fighter to watch well guys thank you so much for all your support I truly truly appreciate it please help out the channel by hitting the like button the subscribe button leave me a comment on the video afterwards share it retweet it all those little things you guys do help me out tremendously you know i don't uh, have any big websites pushing me it's just me and y'all and our love for the game so it means the world to me that you guys are here with me so thank you all very very much truly truly appreciate it and you know again to the fans message me anytime i'm always down to talk to anybody that supports me if you've been sending me tweets and i don't follow you for some reason it doesn't show me the tweets from people i don't follow but my dms are open so y'all can message me anytime i'm always down to talk to my supporters so thank you all again for everything truly sincerely appreciate it and man best of luck with the bets you know again to recap i took islam i took uh I took uh, Muradov, I took Bilal, I took Carl Hosa, all straight. You can check it on my MMA tips. So, again, thank you all so much for all your support. Sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. I'll be back next week for the Calvin Cater versus uh, Arnold Allen fight, which I have a strong opinion on. Maybe even do a little after the battle, after this card, if it's good, So, which I know it will be. So stay tuned. Follow me on Twitter at Best Fight Fix. Subscribe to Half the Battle. 
everywhere podcasts are found. Thank you all again. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.